And I'm really excited about the upcoming church plant in Calistoga. Once my family and I move up there, we're going to start a Bible study, likely in our home, to invite people from the community. And once we have enough people and all the pieces are in place, we can launch the new church up there. Super exciting, right? Just a few steps away and we'll be able to see God's kingdom expand up to Calistoga there. Well, the first book that I want to preach through at the church plant in Calistoga is the Gospel of John. So Ryan and I thought it would be good for me to start preaching through that book now so that we can all be edified and encouraged by it and I can get all the kinks worked out. <laughs> so um, I preached through the first 18 verses last month in our uh, Advent series. Um, and we're going to dive in today looking at verses 19 through 34, which depicts two very different but related encounters of John the Baptist. So let's go ahead and pray, uh, and then we'll dive into the passage together. Father, I know that apart from you and your spirit in my life, I can do nothing. I pray that you would speak through me now, and that your spirit would empower the proclamation of your word to change all of us into the likeness of your son. We long to know you more and to see a glimpse of your glory in your word. Please speak into our lives now and exalt your son in our hearts. It's in his name we pray, amen. Need a little drink of water. <laughs> All right, John 1, 19 through 34 says this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
John had two encounters on two subsequent days which were very different from each other. The first encounter was with the religious leaders, and John was very tight-lipped about answering their questions. And the second encounter was with Jesus himself. And John could not help but proclaim Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God, and what he would ultimately do in saving the world. So let's look a little closer now at the first encounter. This is John's obscure encounter with the religious leaders in verses 19 through 28. This is the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of his true identity and the purpose of his ministry. The Jews had sent this delegation to inquire about John and they were, they were the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They were known as the Sanhedrin. And these leaders were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And they sent this group of priests and Levites to investigate the odd reports that they had heard about this wild man preaching a baptism of repentance. Their first question is this, who are you? At first glance, it seems like a simple, straightforward question but it's charged with assumptions and connotations. I mean, if someone were to ask you today, who are you? What would you say? How would you answer that question? It speaks directly to our identity. Some related questions might include, what makes you unique? What's your purpose in life? Or what makes you tick? Or with what or with whom do you primarily associate yourself? Depending on the context of the question, it may be referring to your credentials, like the question, who do you think you are? The context of the inquiry leveled at John here in this passage is one where they had heard some things about John's supposed identity that needed clarifying from the source. Who is John the Baptist? John's answer reveals exactly what they had assumed, or at least what they had heard and came to verify or dismiss. John confessed and did not deny, but confessed that he was not the Christ. Now, the word structure of that sentence could be a bit confusing in English. There's a whole lot of negatives in there, so, not denying something is kind of a double negative. And the author, John, has sandwiched this double negative between two related positive statements of confession. And all of them depict John's negative statement regarding his identity. That's like, what, three negatives and two positives? I mean, my head is swimming right now, trying to make sense of this in English. And I've been studying the passage for a while. Um, I can imagine that you'll, you all are probably just as confused as I am with the author's wording. Um, but it's much less confusing in Greek, actually, because double or even triple negatives don't have the same function as they do in English. In Greek, the more negatives 
you put on a statement, the more negative it becomes. So John's basically saying, absolutely not. I know what you're thinking, that I'm the Christ, and that's 100% absolutely and totally wrong. You couldn't be further from the truth. Now, with their initial assumption so vehemently denied, the delegation asked if he was the next most plausible option. What then? Are you Elijah? Now, there was a lot of assumption about the return of Elijah, so this question was also charged with connotations. Elijah was arguably one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, and he had been taken up to heaven in a whirlwind back in 2 Kings 2.11. It says, And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, this unique departure from earth had caused all kinds of speculation about whether or not Elijah had actually died, or if he just went to heaven to await a time when God would send him back to earth. And Elijah was actually prophesied by name to return before the day of the Lord in Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now the problem is that they had interpreted this prophecy from Malachi to mean that Elijah would be a deliverer. They assumed that their oppression from the Roman Empire at that time was a judgment of destruction from God, like the end of verse 6 in Malachi chapter 4. So Elijah would return to deliver them from Rome and from their utter destruction. Well, John the Baptist denies this assumption very simply. All he says is, I am not. He doesn't even try to fix their wrong thinking about Elijah. He just says, I am not. I am not the Elijah you are looking for. Now, there are other passages and other gospel accounts that do attribute John the Baptist as Elijah. Even Jesus says that John is Elijah who is to come. But here, John's response simply indicates that he was not the Elijah that they foolishly expected, though he was the Elijah that God had promised. With their first two assumptions thwarted, the delegation asked after a third probable identity for John the Baptist. Are you the prophet? The prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet. This was a reference to the prophet whom God would raise up to be like Moses from Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18. Moses said to the people in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And in verse 18, God confirmed this to Moses saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you 
from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now we know now that this prophet is Jesus, the Christ. But at that time, they didn't understand that to be a messianic prophecy. They were simply looking for God to raise up another prophet, like Moses, who would speak God's words to them and again deliver them from Rome, like Moses had apparently delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And John again denies this identity in the shortest way possible. All he says is, no. Can you imagine how frustrated these priests and Levites must have been with John? All they wanted was a clear answer to their question of his identity, and he had basically given them nothing. I imagine this conversation would sound a bit like this today. Who are you, John? Well, I'm absolutely not the Christ who you think I am, that's for sure. Okay, then are you Elijah? No, I'm not him either. Fine, then are you the prophet? Nope. Ugh, then tell us who you are already. We've got to have some kind of answer to report about you. You see, these guys had had it with John's evasive and short answers. They needed some sort of positive identity to explain what was happening with his influence over the people and why, of all things, he was preaching a baptism of repentance. So he answers them. But again, he's evasive. He claims to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, it seems to me that claiming to be the fulfillment of any prophecy would carry at least some measure of pride or arrogance. But John is not arrogant at all in his claim. In fact, he is rather humble. In verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now in the Greek, there is no article before the word translated as voice. It woodenly reads, I voice crying out in the wilderness. His humility is depicted in this structure because the lack of the article the before voice shows that the voice is not so special. He is not the voice. He is just a voice. He is not a prominent person or even a prominent voice. He's just a voice. Matthew Henry says this in his commentary, those speak best for Christ that say the least of themselves, whose own works praise them, not their own lips. This particular prophetic claim shows that John wanted this delegation and all the world to know that his message was more important than his identity. Who he was mattered little compared to the weight, the gravity of what he had to say. 
And that's because his message was God's message, not his own. Now that John has revealed that he's a nobody, that he has no authority that would be recognized by the Sanhedrin, they confront him about his baptizing. The author, John, specifically notes that they had come from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were sticklers for tradition. Their question of his identity resulted in an insufficient answer to explain his disregard for their traditions, the traditions that the Pharisees loved so much. So their next question is this, why are you baptizing? Why is John, this nobody, baptizing contrary to tradition? There was an assumption of a lack of authority to baptize in this manner that John was baptizing. You see, baptism at that time was usually part of the process, along with circumcision, to convert proselytes to Judaism as a sign of their Gentile pagan filth being washed away. So baptism of Jews was shocking, especially to the self-righteous Pharisees. This is likely one of the main reasons the Sanhedrin wanted to know what was up with this guy who was baptizing Jews and telling them to repent. In the Jewish culture of the time, making a sacrifice was what supposedly made a sinful Jew right with God not repentance and baptism. Those were for Gentiles to become right with God. Repentance of their pagan ways and the ritual cleansing of baptism and circumcision. John was treating Jews as if they were Gentiles. And the religious leaders wanted to know first if he had the authority to make such a drastic change to their religious understanding. And second, if he didn't have that authority, then why in the world was he going against their traditions? Subtly though, John's baptism affirmed that national heritage was not enough to be right with God, as Paul articulates extensively throughout the book of Romans. Well, John answered their question without really answering their question. They wanted to know why he was baptizing in this way that defied their tradition when he had no authority to do so, and he deflects their question about him to point to the one who does have that authority. He says in verses 26 and 27, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I find it interesting that John the Baptist's response is similar to the author John's description back in verses 9 through 11. He said, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The world did not know him and his own people didn't receive him. 
And here John the Baptist says to these religious leaders, among you stands one you do not know. Then John affirms Christ's authority and superiority over himself in a vivid word picture. He says that he's not even worthy to untie his sandal. This is similar imagery to when Jesus would wash his disciples' feet in the upper room before he would be arrested and crucified. You see, people's feet were really, really gross back in that culture. I mean, people's feet are still pretty gross, but back then, like, whoa. Right now, like, we all wear shoes. We walk paths that are mostly clean. If our feet do get a little dirty, then we can clean them pretty easily. Not so back then. They wore sandals, and the paths they walked were dusty and littered with animal feces, okay? And in order to get their feet clean from that inevitable grime, the lowest servant would have to touch that filth with their hands and untie their sandals and wash them by hand. Really gross. So John is saying that this one who does have the authority that the religious leaders were looking for was so far superior to himself that he's unworthy to even be the lowest position serving him. John's basically saying, look, if you have a problem with my version of baptizing, then you don't really have a problem with me. You have a problem with the one who sent me and who's coming after me. Notice, though, that this doesn't clearly answer their question of why he's baptizing. He infers that his authority comes from another, but he doesn't explain to them who it is or what this other person's authority is. All of John's answers to this delegation from the religious leaders have been veiled or purposefully short and obscure. It's almost as if John doesn't really want to reveal anything to them about his identity or his mission. This is an important difference between how John responds to the questions of the religious leaders and the next encounter, how John responds to the presence of Christ. Now the author, John, takes a moment before the next encounter to root this conversation in a historical location. Bethany across the Jordan and to note that this was where John was baptizing. This delegation did not summon John to a neutral location or summon him to Jerusalem. They met him where he was baptizing. And this is not the same Bethany that we will see later in the book of John. This is a different area closer to the wilderness beyond the Jordan, whereas the more familiar Bethany is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived near Jerusalem, where Jesus would stay before heading into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry at the start of the Passion Week. So this delegation from the Jews came all the way from Jerusalem out to a little area near the wilderness called Bethany to find out what the deal was with this guy who was baptizing Jews and calling them to repent. And they did not get a very satisfying answer from John. We don't know exactly where this particular area called Bethany is, but it was probably more than a day's journey on foot from Jerusalem. So the delegation may have left soon after they realized that they were getting nowhere questioning John. But the very next day, 
very next day, John was much clearer when he encountered Jesus and identified him as the Christ, the Son of God. In verses uh, 29 through 34, we see John's clarifying encounter with the Christ. The previous day, the religious leaders interrogated John about his identity, and John kept pointing to Christ because his identity was wrapped up in Christ. Now John sees Jesus, and his testimony about him just wells up and flows out of him as if he can't help himself. We saw how John answered the question, who is John? And now we'll see how John volunteers the answer to the unasked question, who is Jesus? Right there in verse 29, John says, behold, pay attention, look, see that guy over there. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That designation is probably the most powerful explanation of Jesus' identity and mission in all of Scripture. So we're going to spend some time now unpacking the connotations of that loaded statement. Basically, John is saying that Jesus is the sacrificial savior of the entire world. When John points to Jesus and says that he is the Lamb of God, he is referencing the prophecy in Isaiah 53:7, where the Messiah is likened to a lamb led to the slaughter. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But John said that a lamb, like a lamb, Jesus would take away sins. How could a lamb take away sins and afford forgiveness? We read about this a little bit in Hebrews chapter 10, but I want to look at the Old Testament and how that unfolded this, this concept of sacrifices and forgiveness. You see, God had established the sacrificial system back in Leviticus for this very purpose. He says in Leviticus 5, 5 and 6, when he, a Jew who had sinned, realizes his guilt in any of these these rules that God had commanded, and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. You see, the death of a lamb, the death of this lamb was necessary for forgiveness and he explains that in Leviticus 17, 11. He says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. For sinful Jews to make atonement for their sin, they needed to sacrifice a lamb, shedding its blood in place of their own. 
But the Messiah, the Christ, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sacrificial system was set up for individuals of the nation of Israel to be forgiven. But here, a sacrificial lamb would afford forgiveness for the whole world, not just Israel. And one lamb was sufficient for one person to be forgiven. But here is one lamb sufficient for all people, the whole world. And the whole world needs forgiveness and salvation because everyone's heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And God gives to every man according to his ways, which are sinful. As Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says. Now remember that prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7 that we looked about, uh, at just a bit ago? Well, the beginning of that passage in verses 4 through 6 explains how and why this Lamb of God needed to die to take away the sins of the world. It says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is what John meant when he said that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, then he goes on to identify Jesus with a previous statement he had made about him regarding his authority and his eternality. The author, John, had referenced this statement in his theological introduction back in verse 15, which we looked at a few weeks ago, so I won't revisit those implications. But suffice to say that John understands that Jesus is God, who has always existed and has all authority. Then in verse 31, John gives a clear answer to the question from the previous day. Poor delegation. They were probably gone, so they didn't get to hear this clear answer. <laughs> but here it is. Why was John baptizing and preaching repentance to the Jews? It was to reveal Jesus to Israel to reveal his identity as the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world, to reveal exactly who Jesus is and what he was there to do. And then John wraps up his encounter with Jesus on the second day by explaining how he knows that Jesus is the Christ. How do we know? John says it, how, how do we know it's the truth. John explains that he saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on Jesus. Now, other gospel accounts reveal that this happened when Jesus was baptized by John. And John reveals that he did not know 
that Jesus was the Christ beforehand. This was not some clever ruse where John knew all along who Jesus really was and only now chose to reveal it. What he did know beforehand is that the one on whom he sees the Spirit descend and remain is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The one who sent him to baptize with water revealed this to him. Now, who is that? Who sent him to baptize with water? Well, we can reasonably assume that the one who sent John was an angel commissioning John on behalf of the Father, because this is the pattern with prophets like Elijah, Daniel, and so on. So John had a divine revelation that he would see the Spirit descend on someone and remain on them, and that this person would have the authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11:2 prophesied that the Messiah would be empowered by the Spirit in a unique way. It says, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. John would have understood that this person could be none other than the Christ. And he says as much in verse 34 of our passage. John has seen and borne witness that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God is a special designation for the Messiah. Sort of the opposite of how John is just a voice. Jesus is the Son of God. As human beings, everyone, in a sense, is a child of God. And in a relational sense, people, people who are right with God are considered his children. But Jesus has the unique title of the Son of God because he has always existed in that relation with the Father. The Son of God is God himself. Now the purpose of the entire Gospel of John is to produce belief that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. That's in John 20 verse 31. Now, by way of application, I want to answer two questions. The first question is this. How does this passage help us believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, when the religious leaders confronted John for baptizing, though he was not the Christ, Elijah or the prophet, John shifted the focus from his own credentials to the one who was coming after him. Now, this shows that John understood his purpose as preparing the way for Christ. And his purpose was overshadowed by Christ's purpose to save the world through his death and resurrection. John is clearly not the Christ, but the forerunner of Christ. And then when John encounters Jesus, he has divine clarity that Jesus is the Christ. John bears witness to his experience and the divine revelation he received that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, this witness is sufficient to establish his account as undoubtedly factual. 
His credentials as the prophetic forerunner of Isaiah 40, verse 3, give his testimony credibility. So when he says that he saw the Spirit descending and resting on Jesus, and that he had been told by the one who commissioned him that the one on whom he sees the Spirit descend and remain is the Son of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, we should believe him. Jesus is the Christ. Now the second question is this, how does this passage show us that believing in Christ will result in life in his name? John testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In this metaphorical description of Jesus's identity and purpose implies the need for the world to be saved and the sufficiency of Jesus to do it through his death on our behalf. Jesus grants life to the entire world through his substitutionary death, but it's not applied to everyone. That's why Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Those who have faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins are also baptized with the Holy Spirit by Jesus himself. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, results in life-giving. The life-giving baptism of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would see Jesus as your personal Savior sufficient to save you from your sin and from the wrath of God because of your sin. Only Jesus can save you because he's the only one uniquely qualified to reconcile you to the Father through his death and resurrection on your behalf. He is fully human, so he can stand in your place to take God's wrath that is rightfully directed at you and your sin. And he's fully God, so has, he has the infinite capacity to take the place of everyone who places their faith in him for forgiveness of their sins. Now, if you're still thinking that you can be saved by your own goodness, or even thinking that there really isn't anything to be saved from, I beg you to believe that your sin against God has eternal consequences and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Submit to him as your Lord and Savior and rest securely in his life-giving sacrifice on your behalf. Now, if you've already put your faith in Christ, then I pray that this would strengthen your faith and give you assurance that you have eternal life in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. I pray that we, like John, would be enamored with the presence of your son. That we would see him for who he really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.
I pray that we would understand that he is sufficient to take away our sin personally. And Father, if there are those in this room who have not placed their faith in your Son, I pray that you would send your Spirit to convict them and draw them to yourself so that they may believe and have eternal life in his name. I pray that all of us who do believe would have our faith strengthened by this proclamation of your word. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is your Son, and through his sacrifice, we have become your true children. We will spend eternity with you, experiencing your glory and your infinite love forever. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.